Welcome back to another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast. In today's episode, we provide an update about our forthcoming nutrition app, and we also cover a variety of topics, including relative energy deficiency, diet recovery, training frequency, beginner gains, the constrained energy model, ideal durations for bulking and cutting phases, and much more. As always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy. Welcome back to the Stronger by Science podcast. This is your one and only full-time host, 2011 INBF Cardinal Classic Novice Category Champion, Eric Trexler. And today I am joined by a special temporary guest co-host. His name is Greg Knuckles. Greg, how you doing? You know, honestly, I, I'm I'm a little bit heated today. I've got some shit I need to get off my chest. So Okay, yeah, it, the floor is yours. So as people know, this is the first and only fitness podcast and still the only strong pro-Christian family values anti-drug fitness podcast. And in that light, uh, I've gotten a lot of questions recently. I, I've had a lot of people bringing this to my attention about uh, an American sprinter named Shakari Richardson, who recently tested positive for marijuana and will not be allowed to compete at the Olympics. So uh, people have been asking for my take on this. Uh, and, and I've, you know, read a lot of news articles, read a lot of op-eds from people trying to claim like, oh, this is bullshit. Uh, this is unfair, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I, I want to share my perspective mm -hmm. uh, and, and really shoot down some of those very biased fake news perspectives on this situation. So first off, people are claiming uh, the rules are bad, the rules are dumb, uh, marijuana is not an ergogenic, therefore it shouldn't be banned, so she should be allowed to compete in the Olympics. First off, I want to state that's heresy. If you believe that, you're going to hell. Uh, as, as we know, uh, we are living out god's plan in this world in this universe therefore the anti-doping rules that exist are a part of god's plan and therefore they're good and correct i think we can all agree that that is the christian perspective on all rules and regulations that exist in the world today if god didn't want them they wouldn't exist so right. first off that's that's clearly established now that's part of the stronger by science canon uh, and in fact, the biblical canon. Second, uh, you know, I, I don't want this to be all doom and gloom. I think that there is a positive spin we can put on this. So uh, Shakari Richardson is only 21. She's young. She has her whole life ahead of her. Uh, you know, she she's probably got at least two more solid Olympiads that she could compete at if she's able to kick this habit and turn her life around get clean yeah yeah so here's here's a bit of maybe some scared straight tough love uh so you know younger listeners to the podcast may not be aware of some of these characters i'm about to bring up but let me take you let me take you on a little walk down memory lane so one of the first Olympics that I was really, really paying attention to was the 2008 Olympics. Uh, and there was a swimmer there who who a lot of people these days haven't heard of, uh, but he was a 
pretty big deal at the time. His name was Michael Phelps. Uh, He actually broke the record for the most gold medals in a single Olympics. And uh, pretty soon thereafter, pictures surfaced of him toking the reefer at a college party. And now no one's ever heard of him again. Dropped off the face of the map, as far as I'm aware. Has done nothing else with his life. Uh, you know, it, the, the, the wacky tobacco ruined what could have been a very successful career that ended up not being successful due to his crippling marijuana addiction. And so he went from number one in the world to just completely just out of the field. As far as I'm aware. Yeah. Um, there was also another promising young sprinter at those Olympics. Again, most most younger listeners have probably never heard of this guy due to the effects that marijuana wreaked on his life. Went by the name of Usain Bolt. Uh, broke the world record at the Olympics, 9.69. Uh, beat the field by a mile. Pictures surfaced of him smoking marijuana soon thereafter. And again, ruined his career. No one's ever heard of him since. Uh, and, you know, this is the Stronger by Science podcast. We care about bodybuilding, physical culture. Uh, someone who I, I think more people have heard of, mostly due to his political work, uh, a, a certain Arnold Schwarzenegger. Most people these days know know of him as the as the ex governor of California, uh, which I mean, you know, a, a, a pothead. Uh, becoming governor of California. that I feel like that says a lot about our society. Uh, but anyway, a lot of people don't know he actually used to be a bodybuilder. And he was a pretty good bodybuilder. Uh, he won Mr. Olympia from, I believe, 1970 to 1975 consecutively, won six straight. There was a little documentary film made about the 1975 Mr. Olympia, Uh, largely following Arnold Schwarzenegger and some of his main competitors. Arnold won that Olympia, and uh, within the documentary, there is video footage of him uh, toking the reefer after that win. So as we established, he was pretty good at bodybuilding. He won six straight Mr. Olympias. 1976, the next year, he didn't win. In fact, he didn't even qualify for the Mr. Olympia. Uh, and, and I, I think we all know why. So anyway, uh, Shakari Richardson, she's still young, still has a lot of life ahead of her. I assume due to the fact that she is an elite athlete, this was probably the first time that she'd ever smoked marijuana. So she does have time to kick the habit, turn her life around. Uh, and, and I hope that she is able to do that. Very good. Uh, so in other news, we got an update about the diet app. Uh, so did we share the name of the app yet on the podcast? I don't think we have. You, you want to do the big reveal? Yeah, let's do it. All right. So, all right. Three, <laughs> two, one. Okay. For, for people who don't understand sarcasm, the whole last thing was a bit, uh, <laughs> people getting kicked out of the Olympics for smoking weed, dumbest shit I've ever heard of. Uh, and, I I am actually a little bit fired up about this because, like, on one hand, I understand rules are rules. You have your regulations. She has to serve a 30-day ban. That wasn't going to to allow her to compete in the individual 100-meter, uh, which, 
I still think is bullshit, but you know, if you're a strict legalist, I, I can understand that. But her her thirty day ban is up prior to the four by one hundred relay, and they're leaving her off of that as well. That's very fucked up. Uh, let my girl run. Yeah. Okay. So the diet, diet app, app. It's called Macro Factor. Three. Oh, I beat you to it. Damn. It's called Macro Factor. Macro Factor. <laughs> We're stoked about it. Uh, it's going to be awesome. Uh, we've got some beta testers. Uh, picked out beta testing is going to start very soon and and we're we're probably going to end up launching the app in september so uh we've got uh, a coming soon page on the stronger by science website we're going to link that in the show notes if you want to poke around and and see what the app is all about uh check out the web page i think uh i think people are going to like it they better yeah they better we've been working very very hard um all right, Greg, uh, how goes the road to the stage? Road to the stage is going swimmingly. Uh, I was 246.4 this morning, uh, which uh, I, I'm not sure how much that is down in scale weight from the last like discrete day we recorded, but my trended weight is down 1, 1. 1.6 pounds since we last recorded, which is right on track. Uh, nothing major to, to report, really. Um within the the past two weeks that was basically mass writing time uh, which is always the most stressful time of the month for me and if I am going to go massively off script with my diet that's probably when it's going to happen so uh, that did not happen this was a, another successful mass writing part of the month which you know always good good to celebrate those little wins and here is a not so little win. I'm officially down more than 20 pounds from where I started. Uh, and so I'm I'm pretty stoked about that. Um, so yeah, I mean, really things have been going pretty smooth. Uh, there's, I, I haven't had any, I think like major tweaks or, or insights about the process in the past two weeks because it, it has been going uh, very much according to script. Really, the only like fairly small change I made recently is I've started consuming way, way more liquid. Uh, I am, I am chronically dehydrated uh, for whatever reason. I just don't like drinking things. I think it's, I think it's fake news. Um, so I realize like maybe I should mostly because I've been playing more basketball, and when you're playing basketball in a North Carolina summer outdoors and it's super humid. If you're dehydrated when the game starts, uh, things are going to turn south pretty quickly. <laughs> so started thinking like, ah, maybe I should hydrate better. Uh, so I've started basically diluting my morning coffee a lot. I used to drink 24 ounces of hyper-concentrated coffee, uh, and I've started diluting that down to like half a gallon, uh, and it's still like relatively strong. <laughs> Um, so yeah, half a gallon of coffee in the morning, then another, uh, 24 ounces of tea after that to, to round out my caffeine consumption for the day. Uh, you know, sucking down a lot of liquid in the process. So I, I've been a lot better hydrated and I have found that that's helped, uh, reduce hunger pangs prior to dinner. Um, previously I, I'd start getting like pretty, pretty hungry around seven, right around when, we'd be starting to cook. Uh, but now I find myself not hungry prior to beginning to cook. So uh, 
maybe it's helped with hunger management a little bit, but uh, over overall, it's it's having me feel pretty good. Awesome, that's good stuff. Um, now, of course, I'm not on the road to the stage. Uh, as I mentioned, I won the 2011 INBF Cardinal Classic Novice Division, so I think I've proved everything I need to prove on the stage. Is there a competitive Buddhism? Uh, I'm about to make it competitive. <laughs> uh, find someone more Buddhist than me, I dare you. Uh, <laughs> it's very in line with the teachings is to become ultra competitive about it. Um, I, I mean, I feel like it kind of is though, like, uh, not, not like actual Buddhism, but I, I feel like a lot of the ethos of like Silicon Valley tech bros is shifting kind of in the direction of either stoicism or secular Buddhism. Yeah. And I feel like people do make it weirdly competitive. Like, dude, I, I've been meditating so much <laughs> yeah dude, dude i have too I, i've been meditating like two hours a day it's like oh man dude i remember when i was meditating two hours per day but i mean I, i've recently upped it to three and, and i'm feeling so centered yeah uh i don't know it, it that whole that whole thing is weird to me yeah um but anyway i'm on the road to enlightenment i meditate more than probably anyone you've ever met <laughs> and uh so I mentioned that on the podcast uh, fairly recently. I got a bunch of a bunch of really good feedback from people. People reached out uh, who are doing a similar thing, which is cool. But I got a lot of people who asked me uh, where I'm getting all of my Buddhism content and, and kind of like uh, whose teachings I am following. And so I wanted to share a, a shout out to my boy, uh, Karma Yeshi Rabge. He is uh, a Buddhist monk. He's got uh, a podcast called Buddhism Guide that is very cool. I like it a lot. And I actually, I'm not going to get into it today, but I, I I have found it to be very helpful with my coaching. I think some of the perspectives from Buddhism are very helpful when it comes to uh, various fitness-related pursuits. Uh, one of the big ones to me is a lot of people pursuing fitness goals can be so hard on themselves and can really get into that game of being the comparisons of, you know, well, this person has this physique and why don't I? And I think sometimes the, the, the game of just always comparing and comparing and comparing uh, combined with just being really hard on yourself can make the fitness journey go from something that's really positive to something that's really negative. So uh, anyway, yeah, I, I, I think, uh, it's it's something that's got a lot of parallels that maybe I will uh, discuss later. But anyway, Buddhism Guide, really great podcast. It's available on like Spotify and probably all the other podcast platforms. And I've also been reading his books. Um, and, and so uh, the, the book recommendations that I have, you know, Greg, you know me, I don't read. I can read, but I don't. But uh, I have been reading books about Buddhism. So the first one is called The Best Way to Catch a Snake. And it's very good. I would start with that one. After that, I'd read Life's Meandering Path. And then I would also read after that, Ripples in the Stream. And those are all by Karma Yeshi Rabge, uh, available on Amazon. I don't get a kickback, which is ridiculous. Uh, I mean, this is free advertising. I I'd probably need to reach out to Yeshi and, and you could absolutely get a kickback. <laughs> we're we're uh, part of the, Am the Amazon affiliate program. We could drop. Uh, stronger by science uh amazon affiliate link for those we? books oh well there you go well i i mean 
I think we've made a grand total of like twenty four dollars <laughs> off because because the the only uh, Amazon affiliate links that we've sent out in any of our materials ever is uh, in the the introductory emails to the email course. We recommend some textbooks. And we include the Amazon affiliate links to the textbooks that we recommend, which I feel like is the least slimy possible affiliate marketing. Yeah. Um, but anyway, no one buys those fucking textbooks. So we, we've made basically zero dollars on the Amazon <laughs> affiliate program. But we uh, we technically are members. Oh, well, there you go. But anyway, yeah, like I said, uh, I, I've been getting a lot of a lot of the. Uh, a lot of the content that I've been listening to and reading from uh, Karma Yeshi Rabge. He's super chill. He's uh, a Buddhist monk. He's currently living out uh, in India, I think. But uh, he, he is from the UK. Uh, so I, I think he's really, he's very skilled at kind of, you know, because he's he is trained, uh, you know, in, in uh, the Tibetan school of Buddhism. So he, he has, you know... Uh, you know, he's, he's practiced a very traditional approach to Buddhism, but a lot of the content he puts out is, you know, kind of repackaged in a way that people who aren't, uh, you know, very familiar with Buddhism, it's very accessible. Um, and so he, he kind of specifically makes it for, for Westerners who, who don't have a lot of previous exposure to Buddhism. And, uh, yeah, I, I think it's really accessible and, and pretty cool. So if you're interested in checking it out, I highly recommend it. Uh, all right, Greg, what about uh, feats of strength? Who's getting strong? Yeah, so uh, the the first feat of strength is a feat of mental strength. So uh, a a young chess player named Apimanyu Mishra uh, became the youngest chess grandmaster in history at the ripe old age of 12 years, 4 months, and 25 days old. Uh, breaking the record set by uh, Sergei Karjakin, uh, who played in the the World Chess Championships against Magnus Carlsen a couple years ago, previously held the record. Uh, but but young Mishra just absolutely crushed it by about three months recently. Uh, there was an article <laughs> on ESPN about this, uh, and and there was a little. A little blurb in the article that I, that I mostly wanted to talk about this just to just to mention uh, the little blurb in this article. So you know, very impressive. Twelve years old, already a grandmaster in chess. That's a very very hard thing to do. Um, but this article is is talking about the challenges he's faced uh, in ascending to grandmaster status at su- at such a young age. So it's talking about him. Uh, competing in uh, in chess tournaments when he was really young. And so ju- just listen to this paragraph. Uh, Epimanyu was introduced to chess pieces through engaging, uh, through engaging stories by his father at age two and a half. Learning the sport was all right, but as a young boy at tournaments, the struggle was to match the physical stamina of players at least five times older than he. In a winning position, with a pawn up at the New Jersey Open, a five-and-a-half-year-old Apimanyu once found himself struggling to stay awake at the board past midnight. Quote, His opponent obviously figured, there's no way a kid this young can go till so late, so he just stalled and didn't play a move for a whole hour, Heeman said, looking back. Apimanyu kind of wanted the tournament to end, so he offered a draw. His opponent turned it down and was like, no way, I'm winning this. Which, honestly, <laughs> that's one of the the most 
insane things I've ever read about anything competition related. This is a grown ass adult competing against I I can't even say a kid, a child, a small child, five years old. Can't beat him at the actual game. So he's like, ah, I'm just going to wait him out. My adult brain can stay awake and functioning longer than his baby brain. Like, dude, if you get to that point, if you're playing against, you know, someone who's that young, but that obviously gifted and has worked that hard to get that good at a sport, you know, I, I don't believe in letting kids win things. But at that point, you're not letting them win. You're just getting your ass kicked by a prodigy, which is... I feel like kind of uh, kind of like an honor in a way, you know, because if you're good at something and a five-year-old is beating you, that kid's going to be really fucking good one day. So if nothing else, you're going to get a story to tell. But like, dude, so it's, it's one thing to lose to a five-year-old. It's another thing altogether to use fucking psychological warfare to beat a five-year-old. At that point, just hang it up go home like whatever you're doing is not for you you're clearly not good enough at it and also you're not uh you, you don't have the competitor's mindset you know like it, it it's one thing to say like oh, I'm, I'm gonna win at all costs when you're facing another adult if that's the mindset you take when you're competing against a child uh just walk away you know Hard disagree for me. Uh, <laughs> walk up to my chessboard, you're gonna get you're gonna get 100 uh, of my effort. That includes psychological warfare, no exceptions. I'm just saying, like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm playing a five year old kid. H- how late do I think he can stay awake? Probably not past 1 a.m. All right, well, I'm just gonna keep an eye on my watch and uh, j- just smoke him out. I'll, I'll wait it out. I-, I will do anything it takes. So anyway. I tell you what, this whole story really gets under my skin. I'm still pissed off about that that show, The Queen's Gambit, <laughs> dude. So it's it's not a game. Like when I say on the podcast that I hate works of fiction and I have no patience for them, I mean it. I don't enjoy fiction, and so my girlfriend and I were watching The Queen's Gambit which was a television show, a documentary, so to speak, about uh, a young woman who was a chess prodigy and and, uh, had a very successful career. And it kind of documented her uh, rise to prominence in the international chess scene. And throughout the whole first season, I was waiting. I was going to go to her Wikipedia page and learn more about, you know, her life, some of the details, see how well they did documenting and retelling the story. Dude, I get to the end of it and realize this was not a real person. Uh, as it was told in the story. I was furious uh, for a matter of weeks. Eventually, I got over it, uh, but now I'm less Clearly over not. It. <laughs> yeah, I, I thought I got over it. I'm, now I'm, I'm really upset about it. So uh, thank you for bringing that up. Now, how about, uh, how about a physical feat of strength? Yeah, so uh, we've got one. Uh, Chris Yip, a powerlifter uh, competing in, in the IPF and its affiliates, uh, recently pulled 350 kilograms, which is 771 freedom units, uh, at a body weight of 70 kilograms or 154 pounds. So if you were hearing those numbers and you were thinking to yourself, 
That sounds like it might be five times body weight. That is, in fact, five times body weight. Um, that breaks the deadlift record that Taylor Atwood very recently set in the same weight class uh, and is just a outrageous deadlift. Um, <laughs> I mean... I want to say I want to say when I got into lifting the equipped untested deadlift at 165 was below this and now we got a, a drug tested guy pulling more than that a weight class down uh so just just absolutely insane stuff also uh the the video of this will be linked in the show notes you should watch it because this is I mean, I wouldn't even say arguably. It is absolutely one of the best, like one of the most impressive deadlifts ever performed. Dude just looks fucking bored. Um, like he he doesn't look hyped or excited to hit it at all. He's just like, oh yeah, well, this was my game plan coming into the meet. Glad I executed. All right, on to the next one. Um, so, you know, tremendous technique and... Uh, you know, he he seemed to approach it with the mindset of not, oh, I'm I'm about to accomplish this huge thing. I need to get hyped for it. it. It seemed more like, yes, I've prepared for this, and I I am going to do it. Uh, and and boy, did he! So, uh, congratulations to Chris. Very nice. So, uh, this episode of the podcast is going to be pretty Q&A heavy, but I did have a very, very brief uh, research review that I wanted to mention. Uh, so one of the topics that I write about a lot is and speak about a lot on podcasts is metabolic adaptation. And in this research review, I want to talk about two uh, syndromes, for lack of a better term, that are very overlapping. So you know, we talk about metabolic adaptation. You also see a lot of literature about relative energy deficiency in sport. Uh, relative energy deficiency in sport is uh, focused on slightly different ramifications of the same general concept, uh, in, in all honesty. So, like I said, the, the, these two situations, these two syndromes are very overlapping because they, they often occur simultaneously. Uh, but basically, what happens is someone has low energy availability. And so I come from the physique athlete world where a lot of times, you know, we're trying to get really lean for a competition, body fat stores get lower, uh, you know, we're exercising a lot, caloric intake is low. So, you know, we have low energy availability, both in terms of short-term storage and long-term storage. Uh, so the, the metabolic adaptation side of the coin often focuses on more physique-related dieting, and usually you're, you're looking at aspects or, or ramifications of that that relate to energy expenditure. So reductions in non-exercise activity, reductions in total energy expenditure, and dysregulation of hunger and satiety cues. You know, a lot of times satiety goes down, hunger goes up, uh, and, and overeating uh, can become qu quite a big challenge there. When you look at the literature on relative energy deficiency in sport, uh, it, it is very much uh, sport focused. You see a lot of uh, applications in, for example, endurance sport, where people generally maintain a relatively lean physique. Not, you know, they're not always, you know, at the type of body fat level that would be ready for a bodybuilding competition or anything like that. But 
generally lean individuals who are exercising a ton and they're not really eating enough, uh, you know, their, their energy intake isn't quite high enough to keep them in a spot where their energy availability is adequate for the type of exercise volume and intensity that they're putting in. And so, of course, when you're looking at it from that perspective, you know, the, the issue is still low energy availability. Uh, but a lot of times the, the emphasis there is on more sport focused outcomes. So one of the examples is a lot of the, uh, a lot of the commentary related to relative energy deficiency in sport is looking at bone health. Uh, a, a lot of times you'll see that a, a chronic period of heavy training with low energy availability uh, and, you know, relative energy deficiency will result in a higher uh, prevalence of stress fracture. So it's extremely common uh, endurance athletes uh, to, to see, you know, high prevalence of lower body stress fractures because of this combination of high training volume, insufficient recovery, and low energy availability. So you can see how these two, uh, you know, th these two uh, related syndromes kind of overlap and share the same uh, kind of common origin to an extent, which is there's not enough energy. The body can sense that via inputs to the hypothalamus. And then, you know, the hypothalamus dictates a, a, a number of different responses. You know, the hypothalamus is really the origin point for several different hormone cascades. Uh, so, you know, low energy is sensed in the hypothalamus due to low body fat due to uh, insufficient energy intake relative to uh, energy expenditure. And so then we see things like uh, reductions in thyroid hormone, reductions in uh, energy expenditure, reductions in sex hormones. And then, you know, down the line, we see obviously uh, side effects related to uh, libido, reproductive function, uh, bone health, uh, you know, a whole variety of, of unfavorable outcomes that we associate with this um, this um, situation of having really low energy availability. So the reason I give that long introduction is uh, these ramifications of low energy availability related to uh, impaired bone health, impaired reproductive health, uh, low libido, low energy expenditure, alterations in a variety of different hormones, uh, you know, impaired performance uh, for, for athletes and, and for physique athletes who are, who are doing their best in the, in the gym to, to maintain muscle. Uh, we, we see these unfavorable side effects and a lot of people want to know, what do I actually do about that? Uh, and, and there was a recent review paper by Queekman and colleagues. It was called A Review of Non-Pharmacological Strategies in the Treatment of Relative Energy Deficiency in Sport. And the reason I wanted to highlight this paper is because it went beyond the superficial, obvious stuff, right? So if someone comes to you and says, hey, I, I've got, you know, low metabolic rate, I've got, you know, all these different outcomes related to relative energy deficiency, uh, you know, metabolic adaptation, the, the whole kind of, you know, syndrome here, what can I do about it? A lot of times the easy answer, the most superficial thing is, oh, it's easy get into a really big caloric surplus, cut your training volume a ton and gain a whole bunch of fat. Like that will take care of it, you know? All right, great segment, moving on. <laughs> yeah, but <laughs> the, the problem is you're giving this advice to a person who got to a state of low energy availability for a reason. It, it was a series of uh, usually 
intentional decisions related to diet and exercise that reflect their priorities in terms of how much they want to exercise, how much they enjoy exercise, how much they value or, or prioritize leanness. So it can be really hard to tell, for example, an endurance athlete who is, you know, just at, they live to train. It, it can be really hard to tell that endurance athlete, oh, dude, it, this is great. I have a solution. Just train less. They don't want to do that. Uh, or to tell a physique athlete who takes so much pride in their physique, specifically their leanness, tell them, oh, I, I, it's perfect. Here's the solution. Just gain like, you know, 15 pounds of fat and you're going to feel better. That's a really hard sell. And so there are going to be situations where that, you know, there are going to be scenarios where that's just part of the plan. It has to be, right? Like, so for me, I'm I'm not going to feel great at five, five and a half percent body fat. Like in, in that scenario, if, if you want to get back to feeling yourself and getting rid of some of these unfavorable ramifications of low energy availability, fat gain is going to be part of that that equation. But, uh, and same thing goes, if you have just completely excessive endurance exercise volume and, and you're, you're struggling with some of these ramifications related to that, to some, to some degree, you're going to have to manage that training stress a little more effectively. But what I really liked about this review paper is that they talked about some of the other things that we can modify or focus on in the process of trying to reverse some of these unfavorable ramifications of low energy availability. So first thing, uh, they kind of lay out a number of factors that contribute uh, to these various outcomes uh, that, that we view as being, you know, uncomfortable, unfavorable, etc. And so the, the factors impacting the development of the syndrome, of course, there's you know, insufficient long-term energy stores. So a physique athlete, like I said, you get really, really shredded. You're going to run into some of these issues. At a certain body fat, it's going to be unavoidable. Uh, there's also insufficient energy status in the short term. So just being in a really prolonged caloric deficit or a really, really extreme caloric deficit, uh, you know, at some point that's going to be contributing. You know, that short-term energy uh, sensor just simply the state of being in a an energy deficit is a contributing factor. But other things that play into it, uh, psychogenic stress, so just like general day-to-day -day stress from life can contribute and exacerbate uh, some of these issues. Uh, exercise stress, as I already mentioned, absolutely excessive exercise stress with insufficient recovery can contribute to these issues and exacerbate the ramifications uh, that are being experienced. Two other uh, contributing factors that you don't hear people talk about too frequently, one is specifically lack of carbohydrate availability. So there, there is, a, to some degree, you could make the argument that even altering the macronutrient distribution without a big change uh, in total energy intake could be a positive thing. I mean, of course, getting in a surplus is going to be much more impactful than just switching some macros around. Uh, but low carbohydrate availability can be a contributing factor. And another contributing factor that I find really fascinating uh, relates to within-day energy deficiencies. Uh, so there are some studies indicating that you can exacerbate some of these issues by specifically having extended periods throughout the day where you eat, where you are in an energy deficit. So, uh, you know, two individuals who have 
the same overall energy balance. If one person has distributed that energy really effectively throughout the day so that there are not really prolonged uh, fasting periods and there aren't major energy deficits, uh, for example, around the exercise bout, uh, there's some evidence to suggest that by distributing your energy more effectively throughout the day to match up uh, with your energy expenditure, that could have a favorable impact even if you haven't really moved the needle in terms of your total energy intake. So the thing I like about this review paper is, of course, like I said, the the biggest pieces of the puzzle here uh, are going to be getting to a sustainable body fat level, and for some people that involves fat gain, and getting out of a big aggressive energy deficit. Those are, of course, by far the two most important things you can do if you're trying to reverse some of these issues. Uh, But beyond that, there are other modifiable things that can be helpful. So Gaining weight is going to be helpful and getting into a caloric surplus is going to be helpful. But you can also, as part of that strategy for recovery, consider distributing your energy pro- your energy intake more evenly throughout the day. So avoiding those really long fasting periods and making sure you have plenty of energy you know, in that peri-workout window surrounding uh, the, the exercise window where you're actually using a bunch of energy. You could also consider prioritizing carbohydrate availability. So even at a given caloric intake, trying to get extra carbs into the diet at the expense of other macronutrients. Then of course, you certainly want to really effectively manage your training stress. So if you're noticing uh, you know, some of these unfavorable effects related to low energy uh, availability, then of course you want to take a close look at your training program and make sure that it's appropriate with regards to the frequency, intensity, and volume. And if you can find a way to rearrange the training program to do more with less in terms of training adaptations, that can be a really favorable thing that contributes to recovery. And then another thing that people I think often overlook is better management of psychological stressors. So just day-to-day normal life stressors that can have a contributing effect when it comes to some of these unfavorable uh, symptoms or outcomes. So like I said, I I think everybody intuitively understands that if you're at an unsustainably low body fat, gaining some body fat is going to be an important part of recovery. If you're in a huge deficit, getting out of that huge deficit, getting to maintenance or even better, a surplus is going to be part of the recovery process. But there are these other factors that aren't talked about as frequently that can be part of a comprehensive solution to try to recover from this uh, this state of relative energy deficiency. So um, if you want to read more about recovering from like a really intense diet uh, or recovering from, you know, some of these things related to relative energy deficiency, uh, if you go to strongerbyscience.com slash metabolic adaptation, there's a hyphen between metabolic and adaptation. I'll link it in the show notes. Uh, I talk a little bit about recovering specifically from, you know, a really intense fat loss diet. I talk about how long it takes for certain things to recover. So for example, how long will it take for, uh, you know, thyroid hormone to get back to normal versus testosterone versus uh, restoring a, a regular menstrual cycle? You know, these things follow different time courses. So I go into a little bit more detail about about that stuff in the article and a relative, you know, a relatively generalizable uh, time frame that you can expect in terms of recovery. Of course, recovery is going to depend on the approach you take. So, you know, 
if you take a very, very conservative approach to recovering from a diet and you don't really allow yourself to regain a lot of weight and you don't allow yourself to get into a big calorie surplus, then you're going to delay that recovery timeline. So uh, the, the time frame I give in the article is, is obviously um, approximate and it's subject to a great deal of variability based on how aggressive you get with recovering from the diet. But I also, uh, I've got a figure in the article that that talks about, you know, if you're trying to figure out, do I need to, you know, go really aggressive and try to go for a very fast recovery from this diet or this state of low energy availability, or should I take it slower and go a little more conservative? I, I have a, a figure in the article that kind of says, if these characteristics describe you, you really want to get on top of this. You, you might want to go a little bit more aggressive with your calorie surplus, maybe allow yourself to regain a little bit more weight and do it a little bit more quickly. Um, but in contrast, you know, if these characteristics describe you better, then maybe it does make sense to take a slower approach uh, and a more gradual approach to that diet recovery. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into this, but uh, if, if you have an interest in reading more about it, like I said, that article goes into detail about how to recover from a diet or how to recover from a state of relative energy deficiency uh, and what that recovery process entails. So uh, props to these authors uh, of this review paper by Queekman and colleagues, and I'll link the paper in the show notes as well if you want to take a look for yourself. Makes sense to me. All right, Greg, I'm looking at the outline. All I see here is frequency update. I have no idea what we're getting into. Yes, yeah, so I've got a, I've got a little little research review as well. Uh, pro probably won't go quite as long as yours, and then we will uh, get to questions. I think I went the right amount of time. I, yeah, I mean, sure. Uh, anyway, so um, there was a recent meta-analysis published uh, by Cuthbert and colleagues titled Effects of Variations in Resistance Training Frequency on Strength Development in Well-Trained Populations and Implications for In-Season Athlete Training, a Systematic Review and Meta-Analysis. Uh, and so this, this paper was exactly what it sounds like. Uh, it was a meta-analysis looking at the impact of training frequency on strength development in trained lifters. So back in 2018, uh, I wrote an article for Stronger by Science that was... Uh, like basically a non-peer-reviewed meta-analysis looking at the impact of training frequency on strength gains. Uh, and in that article, I concluded basically that there did seem to be a small but significant effect of frequency on strength gains uh, such that higher training frequencies tended to uh, coincide with slightly larger rates of strength gains. So uh, this... 2021 meta-analysis, uh, in fact, found that there did not seem to be any significant impact of training frequency on strength gains. Uh, and I think the biggest differences between uh, my analysis and this one is just that, uh, well, twofold. One, more research has come out, so uh, frequency has, has had a bit of a renaissance in recent years, and so uh, I have not been keeping that article up to date. There have been some additional studies that have come out uh, that have, you know, swung the pendulum back towards neutral. Uh, and also, this meta-analysis was only looking at studies on trained lifters, which 
Uh, I would have done back in the day if there were enough studies exclusively on train lifters to justify, you know, only including those studies. But, you know, there there were fewer studies overall. So I, I was thinking like, yeah, you know, probably worth pulling in studies on untrained lifters as well. Uh, just so we're getting a, a better snapshot of the literature. But there are now sufficient studies on trained lifters to be worth meta-analyzing those. And for, I assume, virtually everyone listening to the podcast, those are the studies that are uh, the most relevant for us. So anyway, um, there's... <laughs> I feel like there, there's not much setup necessary here. Uh, they found, I believe, 10 studies uh all on trained lifters. Most of these studies used uh, volume equated protocols. So, you know, uh, this the same total weekly set volume in different frequency conditions, but differing in frequency. Uh, and they separated out their analyses to look at uh, upper and lower body strength gains independently. Um, but that didn't make much of a difference at all. Uh, long story short, um, for uh, for lower body strength, the effect size was 0.08 in favor of higher frequencies, which is effectively zero. And for uh, upper body strength, it was an effect size of 0.06 in favor of higher frequencies, which is, again, basically nothing. Relatively wide confidence intervals, nothing significant here. Um, so anyway... If this if this were a lesser podcast, at this point, we'd probably just circle jerk for about 20 minutes about how cool and awesome it is to, to update our views when new evidence comes out. I am pretty proud of us for that. I'm, nah, I'm that's, very proud. That's nerd shit. That, that, sh- that should be expected. Uh, being too proud of yourself for doing that is, uh, I don't know, it... It brings me physical pain every time I see it. Uh, I mean, I, I, you know, adopted the Buddhist perspective of non-self, so I really don't have anything to defend when it comes to these types of uh, arguments. Yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, so, um, you know, the the official Stronger by Science party line related to frequency is changing. Um, it does not seem that higher frequencies are inherently independently on average superior for strength gains. Uh, there, there are, I think, a couple of caveats to throw in there. The first and most important is that most of these studies did use equated training volume. So uh, they were mostly using pretty moderate overall weekly training volumes per exercise. So, you know, maybe you're dealing with uh, 10 sets of an exercise per week, and you're distributing that in two weekly sessions or five weekly sessions. So if you're doing two weekly sessions, you're doing five sets per session. If you're doing five weekly sessions, you're doing two sets per session. Uh, But in neither of those circumstances are you dealing with ridiculously high single session training volumes. Uh, I do think that practically, uh, especially for more trained lifters, higher frequencies can have some benefits, especially for people who are trying to build muscle, uh, simply because they may allow you to tolerate higher total training volumes or maybe allocate training volume per muscle group a bit more effectively. So, you know, if you're doing 15 sets of quads in a week, 
uh, and you can distribute that between one session where, say, you're doing uh, five sets of squats, five sets of leg press, five sets of lunges, or something like that. By your last set of lunges, dude, your quads have tapped out six sets ago, uh, and, and that's probably not going to be super high uh, high quality training you're getting in there. Um, th- there have also been some suggestions that the the efficacy of per session volume kind of hits the point of diminishing returns around somewhere in the neighborhood of maybe 10 sets in a training session. Uh, not that higher per session volumes and that are necessarily bad, but that, you know, you're, you're not getting that much out of, say, the 11th set. Uh, so, you know, in a situation like that, if instead of doing all 15 of those sets in one training day, if you split that up to five sets for quads a- across three training days, you know, with, with higher total volumes, maybe you would see more efficacy from higher frequencies. Uh, and also, like I said, higher frequencies may just allow you to tolerate higher total training volume. So, you know, 15 sets, I, I think that's kind of near the limit of what one might reasonably be expected to do for a single muscle group in a single training session. But if you find that, hey, I'm not really responding to that anymore, maybe I need to go up to 20 weekly sets for a given muscle group. Like at, the, at that point, your single training session is becoming kind of ridiculous. And so by by splitting it into multiple sessions for that muscle group, that might help you just tolerate higher total weekly training volume. So, you know, I think that uh, when frequency isn't the only variable being manipulated, you know, maybe practically there there are some reasons you might favor higher frequencies. And to be clear, um, like I said, most of these, most of the studies in this meta-analysis use like pretty moderate volumes. The, the types of volumes that are probably adequate for most people most of the time. So I'm, I'm not using this as an argument that most people probably need more volume and more frequency than was included in these studies. Like for the most part, like I, I think eight to 10 sets per muscle group per week is, is a pretty decent starting point. And if you wanted to do all of that in a single training session, that is probably a perfectly fine thing to do. That's That's not ridiculous single session training volume. Uh, but yeah, so so I think that there might still be some applications for higher frequencies. Uh, and the second thing is, you know, within a single study, and even more so in a meta-analysis, we're interested in what is, it, it, we're interested in whether something is producing superior results for most people on average. Um, and so, uh, frequency, I think, is a is a variable that is. I, I think it's a variable that has a higher degree of like inter individual variability in terms of what people respond well to compared to other variables. I, I would I would need to look up the citation again, uh, but basically, there's um. There's a type of figure that you often see in um, within subject unilateral training designs where basically, say, you have one leg assigned to one training protocol, one leg assigned to another training protocol, uh, and then you can graphically represent uh, each individual's responses. And so you have uh, a line of identity where basically 
it's it's the equation is x equals y so slope of one uh cutting cutting through the xy plane diagonally and you have each individual's results plotted on that xy graph and if a point falls close to the line that tells you like hey their their two legs got pretty similar hypertrophy results from both of the programs and if you see a point falling way above the line or way below the line that says like oh that leg got considerably better results from program a versus program b or program b versus program a so so that's um it's a good graphical representation and you can see how strong uh the core the within subject correlations are so you know if if most of those points are falling along that line of identity uh, and the the correlation coefficient just for the linear regression is like 0.8.9. You can say that, you know, not only are these two approaches fairly similar in terms of average results, for most people, they produce fairly similar results as well. There was a study, there, there was a, a within-subject unilateral study um, a couple years back that had a figure like that and it had the the most uh spread around the line of identity that i've seen in a within subject unilateral study so suggesting that um for some individuals lower frequencies were way better than higher frequencies and for some individuals higher frequencies were way better than lower frequencies that's not what you tend to see. What you tend to see is like people who respond well to training respond well to like the two uh, levels of a particular variable being tested in a study. People who respond poorly to training respond pretty poorly to both training protocols. And and there's not a ton of variability about that that x equals y line. Uh, the the frequency study I have in mind that I'll I'll try to find it to link in the show notes, but we're uh, we're we're running <laughs> pretty close to our deadline this month, so I may not have time to find it. But it, it did have the the largest spread that I've seen in a study like that, where it seemed like higher frequencies way better for some people, lower frequencies way better for other people. Uh, which, again, third time I've said this, that is not what you tend to see in studies like that. So so I think that. Uh, you know, pretty much every training variable is ripe for individual experimentation, but I think frequency is perhaps the number one variable where you need to trust your own personal experimentation, maybe over the science. So if the science is saying uh, higher frequencies, lower frequencies produce similar results on average, you absolutely should not interpret that to mean higher frequencies and lower frequencies will produce similar results for me. That could be the case, but frequency much more than other variables is one that you need to experiment with. And you very well may find that for, you know, certain lifts, lower frequencies work way better than higher frequencies for you and higher frequencies work way better than lower frequencies. Uh, so uh, w- when you see when you see no mean difference in the literature, that always means this is something worth experiment, or not always, that's too strong of a statement. That often means this is a variable worth experimenting with. Uh, and I think that applies doubly to frequency compared to most of the other training variables uh, that one might discuss. All right, good stuff, man. Um, so you want to do some Q&As? 
Yeah, yeah, let's do it. Um, you lead off with one where you think you're going to be doing most of the talking, and I'll I'll try to find that frequency study so you're not waiting on the outline to to upload this episode. Cool. Yeah, I'll I'll do I'll do a couple. Um, yeah. So uh, got a bunch of questions this week. So the first one is from Fit by Psy. And uh, the question is, if a trainee has spent a few years in the gym making minimal progress, you know, poor diet, poor programming, and so on, is there any literature to suggest that their their window of newbie gains isn't lost? Uh, so basically, the, the, the question is, can you still have like a, a beginner phase where you get really uh, rapid and precipitous gains, even though you've been lifting for a few years? Um, and I would say unequivocally, uh, the answer is yes. You can kind of, you know, the newbie gains are there for the taking whenever you uh, make really substantial qualitative improvements in your approach to training and nutrition. So, you know, if you spend four years dabbling in resistance training, but you're just not following any of the optimal principles and you're not even close. You know, you're, you're just really not making good use of your time in the gym. You're not eating effectively to support training adaptations. It's, it's not like your body is going to sense like, oh, I know you're doing it wrong, but you've been in the gym for four years, so you, you cannot make those beginner gains. Uh, you know, th- that's certainly not the case. Once you start to adopt uh, a, a better approach to training and nutrition, you will capitalize uh, on those beginner gains uh, to whatever extent you're capable uh, based on really your genetics, you know. So whatever beginner gains uh, are there for the taking for you as an individual, you will still experience those gains at some point if you go from a really uh, low efficacy approach to training and nutrition and change that to a, a much more effective approach to training and nutrition. Uh, so yeah, some people might feel that they missed out on that window of beginner gains if, yeah, I, I could definitely imagine this scenario playing out. Let's say you started out training with a really uh, misinformed approach to how you should be training, how you should be eating. And instead of flipping a switch four years later and going from uh, you know a very ineffective approach to an extremely effective approach, you know you more likely will piece it together over time. You know, so over that three or four year span of getting acquainted with training and nutrition, you might make some big changes incrementally over that entire span of time. So you might feel like you never had a huge wave where you got you know, this really rapid, uh, you know, expansion of your gains where you gained a ton of muscle and a ton of strength in a short period of time. But the reason that you might perceive that you missed out on that window is because you just drug that out over a three or four year period of making gradual improvements to your programming rather than a really huge change where everything kind of changed at once. Uh, So that's one of the reasons that like, I think training age, uh, you know, how many years you've been training, there are applications for it. There are times where it's useful, but sometimes I think people overinterpret their their training age uh, from a chronological perspective and say like, well, I'm an advanced trainee because I've been lifting for X number of years. You know, like for me, for example, I started lifting when I was 12, uh, you know, I was old enough to be, you know, a chess grandmaster apparently, but not old enough to know what the hell I'm doing in the gym. And, uh, 
so yeah, I mean, from the age of 12 to like 16, I was in there, you know, breaking a sweat, doing hard things, but not eating uh, in a really effective way, not training in a really effective way. So, you know, I, I had kind of a second wave of beginner gains when I was probably 16 or 17. And then when I was 19 and I figured out, or 18 or 19, I figured out what food was. I started eating. Then I had another wave of really, you know, really precipitous gains. And so, uh, you know, I could have at the age of 18 said, ah, dude, I'm super advanced. All my big gains are behind me because I've been lifting for six years. But the reality was it wasn't six years of high quality training. It wasn't six years of high quality dieting. I didn't hit puberty really until a couple years into it anyway, right? Like, I mean, you, you hit like your peak muscle growth. A lot, a lot of guys probably hit that in, in the 15, 16 range, I would think, right? Not when you're 12. I mean, not for you. I mean, maybe not for you. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you you had a beard when you were like eight. Uh, when I was 10. Yeah. But, uh, but yeah, so like basically I, I think some people overinterpret their training age and say, well, you make all your gains in the first three years and I'm past that. But if you make really substantial improvements to your approach, you probably can initiate a, a pretty pretty notable improvement in your progress, even if you've been in the gym, you know, for, for several years. You, you know, I, I I agree with everything you just said. I just wanted to, to riff on one thing for a second. Um, so if you're listening to this podcast and you're you're a young individual, you know, let's say you're under about 16 or so. Uh, I've had a fair number of pretty young lifters message me and, uh, man, I, I, I need to get on with this story quickly. Cause I feel like that's a very suspect setup, but no, they'll, they'll be like, you know, I, I've been lifting for a couple of years and I, I really haven't been, uh, building much muscle and, and like, am I doing anything wrong? Uh, and uh, I'll just ask them like, has your voice started changing yet? <laughs> and if they say, well, I mean, not really, I'll be like, ah, give it a couple of years. Yeah. Uh, cause you know, it's not that you can't build muscle pre puberty or like during early puberty. But I mean, if, if you're a late bloomer, like if you're not hitting puberty really hard till you're about 16, yeah, if you start training at 14, 15, like you'll probably build some muscle, but if you're not building much, don't take that as an indication that you just don't respond well to training generally. Like what once you hit puberty like a brick wall, you'll get a better idea of your uh your propensity to build muscle when you respond to training. So that that, that is a common uh bit, bit of psychological stress that I've seen from from younger lifters who uh, you know, are, are maybe at an age where a lot of people will have hit the the peak weight velocity portion of puberty already, but they just haven't. They feel like they're responding poorly. You know, if you're if you're getting into training at a young age, wait until you're like 18, 19 to to make that mental designation of whether you're, you're responding well to training or not, because uh, once you know, once your voice starts deepening and you start growing some facial hair, if you're still not building much muscle, like, yeah, you might be looking at an uphill climb. Uh, but if you're not to that point yet, j just don't worry about it yet. You'll you'll get a better indication later on. 
But but there is still value in continuing to train. Oh, for yeah. sure, for um, sure. You you might not have really dramatic hypertrophy occurring, but you know the strength gains, the power gains, uh, you know, becoming a more proficient lifter. There's still tons of benefits there for for young athletes who are trying to get into lifting, but might not be you know really packing on a lot of muscle yet. Yeah, yeah, a- absolutely. There's there's a lot of benefits to it. Just just don't take your early hypertrophy returns as a forecast of later hypertrophy returns. Yeah, that that does remind me, though, of my favorite genre of uh, transformation <laughs> pictures. Yes. You'll see, you'll see these people who are like, check out my transformation. And it's like, so what? You, you weren't muscular when you were 11 and didn't lift? Interesting. <laughs> and, and now you're 24 and you do lift and you're big? Very cool. Yeah, uh, or, or the uh, artificial puberty transformation pictures when it's like, yeah, I, I started taking enormous amounts of anabolic steroids and I'm just going to not mention that and be like, yeah, dude, I just gained like 80 pounds of muscle. It was sweet. Yeah, I, I got to say one of uh, w- one of my favorite genres of Instagram posts, both because like I kind of feel for them, but I also think it's funny is when... Uh, when someone is trying to get into like the coaching and like online influencer fitness game when they're still like young, you right, know, yeah. like they're they're still in high school or like maybe first year of college, but you know they're they're very confident. They're they're trying to put their stuff out there, make a name for themselves, and like they really did just hit puberty last year. But I, like transformation photos are a thing because they work, and so you know they don't have a. they don't have a transformation photo that they can post where the before is not pre-puberty you know it's just like you know you just can't use this tactic and still be honest (laughs) like this is a tool that is in other people's toolkits that simply should not be in your toolkit and I, i feel for you but that's that's just the way of the world yeah all right i'm gonna move on to my second one here Oh, I, I found the study, by the way. Oh, you did? Uh, yeah, the it, it did not have the type of figure that I had in mind. Uh, the the visual I had in mind of that figure was a version of the figure that I made in Excel based on another figure reported in the text. Because uh, the figure I described is is the type of figure that I really like. Uh, but anyway, so, so you think you did a terrific job with that? I did a <laughs> I, I did an amazing job. Nice. Um, but yeah, the, the title of the study is Individual Muscle Hypertrophy and Strength Responses to High Versus Low Resistance Training Frequencies by Damas and colleagues, uh, and, and that will be linked in the show notes. They, they do have another figure in the text that also shows the variability. Uh, it, it's another type of figure where basically, uh, what I, I'm... I'm getting out of the describing figures in an audio medium game. Uh, you can check it out for yourself. The The paper will be linked in the show notes. Yeah, good call. All right, so uh, I've got a question here from Dutch Curl Bro. And the, the question is, what is your take on short bulking and cutting cycles, like alternating between a three or four week bulk and then a one to two week moderate deficit? So three or four weeks of bulking, one to two weeks of cutting. Um, the question then says, it seems like in theory, shorter cuts should reduce metabolic adaptation and frequent cuts should reduce the net amount of fat that you put on uh, throughout your consecutive bulking phases. Um, so I am not a big fan of doing these really short bulking and cutting cycles back and forth. Um, that's not 
uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that they can't be done effectively or that they can't work. It's just not the approach that I like to take. Um, the first thing I want to mention is I, I disagree that shortcuts would reduce metabolic adaptations. Um, I, I think probably the more notable aspect of a diet related to metabolic adaptation, I, I would think is the size of the deficit rather than the duration. Uh, so uh, of course, if you have an enormous deficit for a very long time, that's going to be tough. Um, but but I don't think I agree that uh, a larger, shorter deficit is going to attenuate metabolic adaptation when compared to a smaller deficit for a longer period of time. Uh, so I, I would disagree with that particular uh, aspect of the question. What, what, one thing I can add to that is I'm not sure totally about metabolic adaptation, but as far as muscle function goes, and I, I assume those two things are probably related to some degree, um, there, there's been a fair amount of research on, uh, on military personnel that looks to see the relationship between cumulative energy deficit and uh, changes in muscle function. And it, it seems that basically the predictive factor is cumulative energy deficit. And, and whether that's a modest deficit over a matter of months or a really severe deficit over a matter of weeks, uh, if the total cumulative deficit is similar, the effects on muscle function are similar. And I, I sort of suspect that that's probably... Uh, a generalizable thing for a lot of the adaptations that the deleterious adaptations that will occur with weight loss. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, th there are some papers that come to mind, like the one by Garth and colleagues where, you know, when you compare, you know, faster weight loss versus slower, sometimes with faster weight loss in, in the literature, you do run the risk of potentially having uh, you know, some, some larger reductions in lean mass, some larger reductions in various performance outcomes. So I, I think it's tough to sell the idea that a larger, faster weight loss phase is inherently more efficacious for someone who's interested in maintaining muscle, maintaining performance, avoiding metabolic adaptation. If You know, you could do some work and argue on behalf of the, the two uh, approaches potentially being equivalent in some circumstances, but I, I don't I don't think it's easy to make the the case that uh, you know going with a big deficit uh, is going to be inherently more advantageous. Um, another thing that uh, I kind of disagree with is the the concept that more frequent cuts necessarily is going to reduce the amount of fat gained. I mean, of course, cutting does reduce body fat, but I, I think a simpler approach is that you could just do a more conservative, more prolonged bulking phase. Uh, so it's kind of like, you know, you only need those frequent cuts because you're doing these short and more rapid bulking phases. So you're kind of solving a problem that you have created by, by taking this approach. Uh, you know, the reality is uh, a lot of natural lifters, drug-free lifters, they just don't grow muscle particularly quickly, uh, especially after they're outside of their kind of their beginner gains of their career. Uh, so you, you can't just high calorie your way through that and force muscle gain. Um, you know, it, it's, it's not going to be an efficient way to gain muscle in the absence of fat. And based on, you know, this individual's question talking about doing these frequent cuts, I assume that they, uh, that they're placing a priority on leanness to some degree. 
you know, if the goal is just, I want to get huge at any cost, then yeah, I mean, high calorie, let's go for it. But the reality is the idea of doing a really short bulking phase for a drug-free lifter, I think a lot of times people end up going too aggressive with it. They gain probably more fat relative to lean mass than they intended to. Then they have to do this cutting phase and, and the cycle kind of continues in that manner. Personally, you know, I think that when it comes to bulking and cutting cycles, uh, stability is a huge asset. You know, so when I start working with a client, what I like to do is establish a baseline, get a really good understanding of exactly how much energy does it take for us to maintain body weight or to gain weight at our intended rate of weight gain or to lose weight at our intended rate of weight gain. But that stability day to day, week to week, month to month is a huge asset. It introduces a level of predictability to the approach that makes the future changes to calorie intake or macronutrient distribution, it makes them so much easier and so much straightforward. When you have this very clearly established trend, you can see over time, not just the rate of weight gain or weight loss, but also the content of the weight gain or the weight loss, you know, the, the actual composition of the tissue being gained or lost over time. It's a much more nuanced and more predictable approach than just saying, hey, the next three or four weeks, let's just go for it. We're going to eat like crazy. We're going to spend a lot of time in the gym and whatever happens, happens. You know, I, obviously I'm kind of straw manning the approach there, but you get the idea. I like to keep things predictable and take a gradual approach that matches basically what we can realistically hope to achieve as a drug-free lifter, but also allows us to assess that progress over time and make adjustments as needed. Uh, and I think when you have these really rapid phase shifts that often involve bigger surpluses and bigger deficits on the other side, I think you sacrifice a lot of that stability and a lot of that predictability. Uh, and I think you just end up doing a lot more oscillation than you really need to. You know, I think the potential benefits of taking these bigger, more aggressive approaches with more frequent phase shifting between bulking and cutting uh, I, I think the the cons outweigh the pros, and I much prefer to take a slower, steadier approach when I'm working with clients or when I'm trying to change my own physique. Can, can I say something uh, vaguely cynical? Sure. There's a part of me that wonders whether these types of strategies are just kind of a... a, a response from nutrition coaches that uh, want to justify their rates basically and like we're always doing something yeah like we got we gotta make more frequent changes and, and we need to complicate things because otherwise how will we justify people paying us well I, I will say that this is definitely the type of thing that can help you would theoretically help you really capture a client's interest yeah where it's like we're always on this short-term mission, full steam ahead. Yeah, I, I get what you're saying. Yeah, I, I don't, I don't know the degree to which that's uh, that's purposeful, or or if people are, you know, find that hey, my my clients like shifting phases more and more, so now let's uh, kind of back calculate a rationale to justify this. But yeah, yeah I, I don't know, I doesn't sit right with me like the, yeah. that that should not be that complicated and i i feel like ultimately you're you're just complicating what should be a, a fairly simple thing yeah um 
you know, I, I, I would present the other less cynical side of that, which is if you were a coach, well-intentioned, and you noticed for a particular client, as you kind of alluded to, you know, when I'm working with this client, they are so much more locked into the process when we have these shorter uh shifts in phases when we do a quick bulk and a quick cut. And so if you're like, listen, the net effect of this is positive because they're more engaged with the programming, they're enjoying it more, they're adhering better. It, it could be a tool that you use to to facilitate more client buy-in. Um, but like, like you said, I, I'm sure there's also uh, a sleazy way to do it where you're like, oh, you're going to discontinue services? You can't. We're just about to start the cut. Yeah. You know, so... Uh, yeah, I, I, I don't want to ascribe ill intentions to everyone who does that, but yeah. I think that for some individuals, they might be there. Yeah, yeah. Th- there's probably something to that. And one of the things I always think about when I when I view various strategies with regards to nutrition and altering body composition... Uh, the first question that always comes to my head is, have we have drug free individuals basically stolen this as a way of mimicking less drug free lifters? You know, uh, <laughs> that's, that, that's an awesome euphemism. <laughs> but like, you know, like one of the so one of the things that comes to mind is like the really aggressive approaches to shedding water weight for like a, a natural bodybuilder that's about to get on stage. Yeah. Like, you know. We we've borrowed that the, uh, the or, or like uh, major carb loading exactly. after a workout to exactly. mimic exogenous insulin. Yeah, and it's like yeah, I mean yeah, people are putting down those carbs because they're taking enormous doses of insulin. Yeah, and they're not interested in immediately dying. Uh, but yeah, it's the same kind of thing where a drug free lifter says, "Oh yeah, all the the huge IFBB guys are doing it, so like let's go ahead and borrow that strategy." I wonder if, you know, these really short, really intense bulks are like, you know, there's certainly a more feasible uh, thing to do if you have some pharmacological assistance. And let's say you actually could stand to gain, you know, several pounds of muscle <laughs> in a very short time frame. Uh, but but I think for a lot of drug-free lifters, uh, especially later in their lifting careers, that that kind of approach is pretty off the table. Man, when I learned uh, that a lot of like the traditional quote unquote bro science nutrition advice uh, was largely just like a result of accommodating steroid usage, so many things made so much more sense. I I think like one of the biggest ones is, you know, if you uh, if you look at like the most traditional bodybuilding diets, uh, a lot of them are going to be like pretty low fat, a lot of vegetables, very very quote unquote clean. Um, and, and like the, the whole concept of like clean eating and bodybuilding, I, I've seen several older bodybuilders. And, and like when you go back and look at um, like bodybuilder, bodybuilder diets from pre steroid era, that's just not what you see at all. And I, I've heard from several like older, uh, untested bodybuilders that like, oh yeah, that, that shift was solely because like we didn't want our liver to disintegrate and our blood lipids to be completely fucked up by the compounds we were using. And like if our blood lipids were going to be fucked up from all of the <laughs> exogenous compounds we were using, we we wanted to eat in such a way that would like 
delay our our inevitable heart attack as long as possible yeah <laughs> and so it's like oh, okay okay that that makes a lot more sense now yeah that's a really <laughs> a morbid way to look at it I, I don't know if i've ever mentioned this on the podcast but I, I know i've i've told you just hanging out that uh during my phd i took a nutritional biochemistry course mm-hmm. and uh the, the way I, you know, really got on the professor's good side, uh, this professor had no exposure whatsoever <laughs> to anything bodybuilding related, yeah. like just was was not on her radar. But um, over the course of this nutritional biochemistry class, we would learn about some aspect of physiology that was interesting. And it felt like every single lecture I could go up after class and say, do you want to hear a disaster story about a bodybuilder trying to exploit this with drugs? And she would at first go like, oh, okay, I'll hear it. And then I think by the end of the course, she was excited for like, she would give a lecture and then I would give the post lecture about how a bodybuilder, <laughs> you know, made a colossal mistake trying to exploit that particular aspect of physiology uh, with an ill-advised approach to drug use. Um, but yeah, it's, there were, there were many stories to choose from, that's for sure. You want to hear something interesting about mitochondrial uncoupling. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the, the DNP stories, yeah, I, I, all, all of it. Yeah. Um, all right, so I've got one more question here I want to get to, and then I know that you've got a bunch of questions that you put in the outline. Yeah, the, the ones I have are, are, I think, pretty evenly split for the two of us. Oh, cool. Um, yeah, so the, the last one I've got here is from Lori. And uh, Lori asked uh, if the only feasible time to train is going to be between the hours of 4.45 p.m. and 7.30 p.m. And my regular bedtime is around 10 p.m. Are the ergogenic effects of caffeine worth the risk of having sleep negatively impacted? Um, You know, so the idea being if I'm taking my caffeine, you know, trying to shoot for an ergogenic dose around 5 p.m., is it worth it uh, if I'm going to be going to bed at 10 p.m. only five hours later? Um, My personal opinion, I would skip the caffeine. Uh, The half-life of caffeine, and again, this is the half-life, not the, you know, completely eliminate it entirely from your system time frame. A lot of times you see it estimated in studies at five, six hours, sometimes as high as eight. Uh, So I I just don't like the idea of ingesting really high doses of caffeine within, you know, four or five hours uh, of trying to go to sleep. I know for me personally, uh, even though I'm a regular caffeine, I think a lot of people convince themselves like if I just abuse caffeine long enough and with great enough intensity it'll be fine. <laughs> you know, uh, I don't think that's the case. I'm a very habitual caffeine user, but still, if I have caffeine that late in the afternoon or into the evening, it does disrupt my sleep. And it doesn't mean, I think a lot of people think caffeine related sleep disruption means you're going to be staring at your ceiling for four hours. Yeah. That's not how it always manifests. In, yeah. in many cases, you spend the same same amount of time in bed. You might be a little more restless at night, but I mean, it's it's really the sleep quality for me that, that seems to get impacted in a big way. And so I'm, I might still be able to get to sleep at a reasonable time frame and maybe even stay asleep throughout the night, uh, as far as I can tell. Uh, but man, it, it really does impact my sleep quality. And I just feel like crap if I habitually consume the caffeine late in, in the afternoon and evening. 
And another thing to keep in mind is the ergogenic effects of caffeine. They're nice. It, it, it's a thing you can use, but they, they are not enormous uh, ergogenic effects. You know, it, it's a nice supplement when it comes to strength and power performance, but man, the value of sleep is so much more important than anything you're going to get from, you know, 200, 300, 400 milligrams of caffeine, in my opinion. I agree wholeheartedly. All right, let's uh, let's move on to some questions from the Facebook group and subreddit. Um, so let's start with this question by Connor Mackin. Uh, what does you and Eric's cardio routines typically look like? Have either of you done any sort of marathons or races? I definitely have never done a marathon. Uh, I have actually done a sprint triathlon. Uh, it fucking sucked because I am a very weak swimmer. Uh, if if they put the swim portion on the back end of the triathlon, I think my total performance would be better, but I would also have a much higher risk of dying. Uh, so maybe the swim first is good, but uh, yeah, I, I really struggled in the pool. Um, and, then, and then the rest went fine. I mean, it wasn't fast. I don't remember my time. I finished definitely like... Uh, in the middle, but like below the middle of the pack, kind of, or probably around 30th percentile for the race. Uh, but I did finish it. Um, but yeah, that, that's the only, (laughs) and that was, that was like 11 years ago. That, that's the only, uh, endurance event I have ever competed in. Um, yeah, I, I don't have a, a structured cardio routine by any means. I go on a lot of pretty long walks. So generally uh, at lunchtime, I'll go for about a 30, 45 minute stroll. Uh, and then oftentimes I'll go for another 30, 45 minute stroll in the evening. Um, and I'm playing a lot of basketball pretty consistently. So that's that's the high intensity portion of my cardio. I got to tell you, first time I got back on the on the court after um, after like pandemic restrictions were lifted, full court was not fun. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, I, my 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 lungs are are getting back to the point where I can you know run a game of full court and definitely be tired by the end, but can actually play the sport the whole time instead of uh mostly just focusing on survival by about the midway point of the game uh but yeah so so long walks in basketball that is my cardio program yeah with with cardio i don't like to get overly uh prescriptive i don't like to really focus on the numbers too much um i i like to go for walks um and, you know, the more I need to burn energy, the longer they get. Or if I just have a lot of stuff on my mind and I just want to clear my mind, I'll go for a nice long walk. You know, that's good. Uh, back in the day when I was still a competitive wrestler and football player, I would run a lot, especially for wrestling. Um, in hindsight, probably not the best use of my time in terms of training, uh, but whatever. I like to go for a long run from time to time. I would go for, you know, the, the two mile run was my favorite. I could usually keep my average mile time under like six minutes. Uh, and then I, I would even go for, for some longer runs. I, I, I would either go for like a two mile run or like a seven or eight mile run. Uh, and the seven or eight mile run, you know, I definitely get them done in under an hour, uh, you know, but 
I, that, that's about as much quantification as I would ever do. The big thing I'm doing right now is uh, I feel very comfortable saying that I'm a worse swimmer than you because I, I probably would have needed rescue. If I tried to do a, a, a sp- even a sprint triathlon, I don't think I'd finish the, the swim. Backstroke. So I'm a... Uh, what what I'm doing right now is trying to... I, I, I could not do... I forget how far it even is. It's not that long of a, of a swim, but yeah. I, I was incapable of doing, you know, a standard like forward crawl uh, <laughs> for the entire distance. Yeah. I, I, I backstroked it. If okay. you're a weak swimmer, you can, st- you can still backstroke the swim distance for a sprint try. Yeah. 100%. Yeah. So right now I am trying to become a proficient swimmer uh, in my free time whenever I can find some. So, so far not going well, it's not pretty, but, uh, but yeah, that, that, that's my thing is like with cardio, I try to make it enjoyable. I just try to make it do something that captures my interest. Um, I I moved recently. So now I live kind of near a lake. I want to get into stand up paddle boarding, but, uh, across that bridge, you can see the progression of my cardio. I want to learn how to swim so I don't die <laughs> when I do my paddle boarding. Uh, so there's a reason for it. But uh, but yeah, that, that's it. I've never done any anything competitive in cardio. I, I, I thought you were about to say, you see the progression of my cardio. It's just getting less intense over time. Like, yeah, I, I used to go for 10-mile runs. Now I kind of splash around in the pool. Hey, Maybe do some paddle boarding, which, as I understand it, is something that a lot of, like, retired people in Florida do. Uh, And then it's like, you know what? I'm eventually just going to be the guy at the gym who sits on the recumbent bike and watches Fox News while pedaling at three (laughs) miles an hour for, for like, an hour and a half. I mean, I probably will be. It's fine. Uh, Yeah, so that's my answer. Okay. Uh, All right. Um M. Ake asks, uh, got into a conversation at in another fitness group about Ponser's constrained energy model and its implications for, for folks trying to use exercise to increase calorie burn. Would love to hear your takes on it. Uh, so, so first off, I think, um, I think it would probably be a good use of time for us to do a deep dive on this topic at some point. So I, I have every intention of giving a pretty surface level answer here. Um, M asked about this, but there were, I think like four or five questions about uh, Ponser's constrained uh, energy expenditure model between the subreddit and Facebook group. So there's, there's obvious interest in this topic. Uh, I think largely related to the, the book that Ponser put out recently called burn. If memory serves, so my my take on it is um, I haven't read the book, but I have read the the main paper that Ponser published back in 2016 on this topic, and I th- so the the basics of the constrained energy expenditure model for for people unaware is that um, like physical movement uh, increases caloric expenditure but only to a point. So if you go from being completely sedentary to moderately active, your total daily energy expenditure will increase concomitant to the amount of additional movement you're doing and the additional calories you're burning from that movement. Uh, But after 
like a, a relatively modest level of physical activity, um, you you start to see a plateau where further increases in physical activity throughout the day do not coincide with uh, further increases in total energy expenditure scaled to lean mass or total body mass. Uh, so the the possible mechanisms potentially explaining that are that, you know, outside of exercise, like your sedentary time might just become like way more sedentary. Um, you know, if, if you're moderately active, then when you're not doing exercise or something, you know, moderately physical, you know, maybe you're still kind of up and moving around a little bit when you're at home and just chilling out in the evening. But if you were very active through the day, you get home, you sit on the couch, you pop a beer, and you you don't move until you go to bed. You know, so like there there are <laughs> there are gradations of sedentary time. Um, so that that's one possible explanation. Another possible expl- explanation is potentially metabolic. Uh, if you're uh, being way more active, maybe you just start to to see a slight downregulation of uh, resting metabolic rate. So. Um, Anyway, the the negative interpretation I have seen from this model floating around online is that uh, basically exercise is pointless for increasing energy expenditure. I, I've the, and, and that's the thing. So this is a pretty nuanced idea, mostly because it, <laughs> you're not dealing with a perfectly linear model. You're dealing with a model that has a breakpoint. And a lot of people have a hard time thinking past straight lines. And so, so they hear like, oh, doing more and more exercise doesn't further and further increase caloric expenditure. Therefore, little shortcut I'm going to put in my brain, exercise does not increase total energy expenditure. Therefore, like... You know, if you're trying to lose weight, exercise is actually completely pointless. Uh, and I don't think Ponser would agree to that. That's certainly not a, a logical implication of his data. Um, yeah, I mean, like a lot of, especially Americans, are are very sedentary. Uh, we have sedentary jobs. And if you don't train for something, compete in a sport, you're probably fairly sedentary outside of work as well. Most people listen, I don't know about most people listening to this podcast, but most Americans would probably increase their total daily energy expenditure by intentionally moving a bit more. And, you know, that doesn't have to be intense exercise. Just go for a walk, spend some time in the garden, whatever. Uh, That will probably increase total daily energy expenditure. If you're someone who, you know, is like already pretty active and you're like, oh, if I do 20% more activity, will that increase my total daily energy expenditure? Eh, maybe not. Who's to say? That That is a possible implication of the model. Um, another thing to note, I think, th- that's worth pointing out is in the 2016 paper, uh, there were there were some big ass error bars on, <laughs> on the actual figure presented. Um, and, and I think that that's pretty logical, right? So I, I think that, um, you know, if we assume that leisure time physical activity and, and changes in that um, are, are one of the primary mechanisms by which further exercise might fail to increase total daily energy expenditure, I, I think a, I think a pretty big variable is basically like how active your job is. So 
if you have a completely sedentary job and say like, yeah, I, I want to train for a marathon, uh, or, you know, you're, you're already like pretty active, uh, but you're like, okay, I'm, I'm going to start training way, way harder. Maybe that won't lead to that, uh, that large of an increase in energy expenditure because you do just have the capacity to be <laughs> so sedentary the rest of your day. Whereas like, you know, let's say you work construction or you work at a fucking Amazon warehouse and you say like, yeah, outside of the gym, I'm going to double the amount of miles I'm putting in per week. At that point, like you're spending eight hours a day doing something very active necessarily like to earn a paycheck. So like that increase in exercise energy expenditure w will, I think, probably increase total daily energy expenditure. So, you know, I, I, th I think it's an I think it's a nuanced topic. Um, I think for most people in the Western world doing a little bit more exercise will probably increase energy expenditure. Um, but it, I, I do think it's pretty clear that it's not a, a one-to-one relationship for all people at all time. Like if you start putting in a, an extra hundred calories worth of exercise per day, your total daily energy expenditure depending on what the rest of your life looks like and how active you already are, very well may not increase by 100 calories. It, it will probably increase to some degree less than 100 calories. Uh, but but again, that, that's going to depend on, on all of those other variables. Yeah, I mean, one of the reasons that I've neglected to uh, pick out some of the... Because we've seen questions like this before that have been submitted uh, related to this uh, constrained energy model. One of the reasons I've shied away from selecting those questions in the past is I don't want to critique the model without giving it a really thorough review. Um, and I just haven't gotten to that point yet where I'm like, all right, I'm going to go ahead and dig into this start to finish really in depth. But, you know, one of the things that has kind of uh, stifled my appetite for doing that is because I I've already looked at some of these aspects from a very practical perspective. So like I've looked into the research that, that raises questions that are applicable to my coaching, right? So like, uh, are there behavioral adjustments that people implement unintentionally in response to increased exercise energy expenditure? You know, so are there behavioral modifications that people kind of subconsciously implement when we have them exercise more for weight loss purposes? Uh, are there metabolic uh, compensation mechanisms that occur when we tell people to, to go exercise and burn more calories? Uh, do, people, do some people subconsciously replace exercise calories with additional food uh, when, we, when we try to get them to exercise to lose weight? So I've looked at some of these various things. Some of them are directly related to the energy, uh, constrained energy model. Some aren't. You know, but it, it's more of a just uh, global perspective of if we try to use exercise in the real world as a weight loss tool, what happens? Do people eat more in response to it? Do, do they adjust other aspects of physical activity? Uh, do, are there metabolic consequences that that's the part that I think fits really well within the, the, this particular energy model? Uh, and so, you know, the, the answer is in the real world, uh, yeah, this stuff happens. Some people do have, you know, uh, a response where they have a lot of compensatory eating if we try to rely too heavily on cardio. That's an important thing for people to understand from a practical perspective. 
related to constrained energy, like you like you uh, already described, there are some metabolic uh, compensatory mechanisms when we try to really ramp up exercise energy expenditure and, and push it to really high levels. So I, there is evidence of that that is very much in line with the general premise of this particular model. Um, and, and then there are also, uh, you know, just other, uh, whether they're conscious or subconscious, other behavioral modifications people do. So, you know, you might, you might have a client that you say, Hey, let's try to burn these extra calories by doing this particular amount of cardio on top of, you know, a pretty high general physical activity level. And you might notice that they're parking a little bit closer to the store. So they don't have to walk as far in the parking lot. They might be taking the elevator more. So in the real world, there are so many inputs. Some of them relate to this model. Some of them don't, but I think definitely the, the overarching theme is, if you think that you're going to either for yourself or for a client, if you think you're going to say, let's do 200 calories of cardio in a vacuum and assume that we're going to have 200 extra calories of a deficit, it's the, the research would in, indicate the deficit is probably going to be pro, probably going to be smaller than you expect yeah, uh, for yeah. any combination of those things. So uh, from a, from a practical perspective, uh, I, I do think, that there's definitely merit to, to the constrained energy model. Um, but, but I think there are other factors that even go outside of that model uh, that, that would lead you to very carefully consider how much a particular exercise bout is going to move the needle. I, I'd absolutely, without question, think that cardio structured exercise can be a very valuable tool as part of a weight loss approach. Um, but you, you have to expect some of these, you have to anticipate some of these compensatory things and kind of bake that into the approach. No, I, I agree. I think we'll probably do a deep dive on this eventually. So let, let's just move on. Cool. All right. Uh, Tyson Maniac uh, in the subreddit asks, uh, it's often said that one pound of fat loss corresponds to about a 3,500 kilocalorie deficit. My question is, what is the equivalent for muscle? If it's not the same, then how can you know if you were in a caloric deficit or surplus while gaining muscle and losing fat at the same time? In particular, if muscle is, say, more energy dense than fat, uh, wouldn't that mean you could be in an energy surplus and losing weight if, on the other hand, one pound of muscle takes about 3,500 kilocalories surplus or deficit to gain or lose? Isn't it kind of wild that it's the same as fat? That seems unexpected. So, there's a lot there. Basically, the, the question being asked is, <laughs> what is the uh, energetic value of a, a given unit of muscle mass in relation to fat? Uh, and therefore, you know, would it possibly, could you possibly uh, be weight neutral, but in a caloric deficit or surplus if you were simultaneously gaining fat and losing muscle or vice versa? Um, and yeah, uh, so... First off, I I have the <laughs> the kilogram numbers in mind, not the pound numbers. So uh, sorry to American listeners. Um, so, but they'll. I mean, we're we're dealing with kind of concepts here. So the the and correct me if I'm wrong, Eric. But the uh, energetic value of a kilogram of adipose tissue on average is about or uh yeah is about like 9400 calories right yeah yeah so about 9400 for fat and for uh 
for lean mass, and, and this is kind of all lean mass, but uh, muscle is is the largest uh, constituent of lean mass you have. It's about 18, 1900 calories. Correct. So, uh, in effect, um, in effect, fat is about four and a half times more energy dense than lean mass is. So, yeah, if if you lose a kilo of fat and gain a kilo of muscle simultaneously, even though you'd be weight stable, you would actually be in a calorie deficit and vice versa. If you gain a kilo of fat while losing a kilo of muscle, you would be weight stable, but actually in a calorie surplus. Uh, And theoretically, (laughs) you could lose or you could gain uh, four and a half kilos of muscle while losing a kilo of fat and therefore gain three and a half kilos while still being uh, in energy balance. Uh, So those are extreme circumstances. Like uh, for the most part, you're you're probably not going to be gaining three and a half kilos of muscle while in a deficit, uh, at least over like the short to medium term. So, you know, the, the, those are kind of theoretical considerations, but the, the main practical point is that yes, the, uh, energy density of fat is considerably higher than that of muscle. So, uh, if you're, if you're in, like, let's say you're lean bulking, uh, you're gaining very little fat and a lot of muscle in a calorie surplus, you will need to be in a smaller surplus per unit of weight gain in terms of like raw kilocalorie numbers than you would be, uh, then you would need to be in an energy deficit to lose fat at a similar rate. So, you know, if, if you wanted to lose, uh, a kilogram per week, and let's just assume that's all fat. Uh, you would need to be in a four and a half times larger energy deficit than if theoretically you were in a surplus where you were gaining a kilo of muscle per week. Um, but yeah, yeah, the the energy densities of those two tissues are considerably different. Uh, you want to do one more question? Yeah. Michael Taylor asks, there are now so many amateur statisticians that draw conclusion that draw conclusions based on data Googled to support their views. What are the most common errors that you see the masses make when interpreting statistics? I, I, I feel like this one is teed right up for you, Eric. Mm. A lot of papers in our area use analysis of variance. And I think a lot of people misunderstand the general nature of interactions and you know if there's a significant interaction how to actually get to the bottom of it and ascertain what that means uh, as it relates to the research question so like you know i've seen misinterpretations where people say oh uh you know there's you know a pre-post design two different groups each group obviously measured before and after an intervention and they'll say yeah that you know there was a significant interaction but their post-test values were not different from one another. We're not significantly different from one another. So uh, I guess we'll ignore it. And you know th- that really doesn't get to the root of what the interaction is. And if that was the only comparison you had an interest in, th- then why bother incorporating the pre-test data? If all you wanted to know was, are they different at post-testing, just do a t-test on the post-test values. So I think uh, general misunderstanding of what an interaction really represents in an ANOVA model is a really common one. 
I think, because uh, what we're looking at there is basically, is the change from pre to post in one group different from the change from pre to post in the other group? That, that's really what the interaction is getting at. So if you have an interaction and they're not different at the post-test time point, they're not significantly different, then you, you have to dig into that and figure out, okay, so they had different changes from pre to post. What does that mean for us as it relates to the research question? So it's a very different question, uh, looking at the interaction versus just saying, were the post-test values different for these two groups? Uh, I think one of the the really big, um, I don't know if I would call it a, a misinterpretation or just like a, just something that's become common practice that really shouldn't be. And we've talked about it before on the podcast, but just unnecessarily grouping stuff, you mm-hmm. know? So uh, y- you might want to know, turning a continuous variable into a grouping variable exactly yeah so you're like okay we want to see if your magnitude of response to training relates to this other thing and so like magnitude of response to training you could measure it as you know uh pounds added to bench press or something or uh you know thickness added to vastus lateralis muscle you know i mean there, there are a number of continuous measures that could be utilized there And so option A, which would be preferable, is just to leave it that way and look at its relationship to this other variable. Um, But a much more common thing is to kind of just say, well, let's just split it in the middle. And if you are below the median, then you're in the low group. If you're above the median, you're in the high group. And then we'll do group-based comparisons from there. But that's that's not ideal because you could have two, two different people that are straddling the median and their response is virtually identical uh but they're being treated as you know these two completely separate groups so you just get into this weird situation where people with and you also just lose a shitload of statistical power you lose yeah you you lose a lot of information so you know i mean it it, it's like uh it's like if you're looking at the results of a race right And, and there's 20 people in the race and you separate them into the groups of who won and who didn't, <laughs> you know? And it's like, yeah. okay, well, the person who didn't win, did they get third or did they get 19th? You lose so much information when you do this kind of grouping. Uh, and, and what I was getting at is you you could treat the values from two people who are very close, but on opposite sides of the median as being different. But, you know, you could have a huge difference from the lowest value in the low responder group to the highest value in the low responder group. There's no distinction between them. You know, they're treated as equivalent, even though they're quite far apart in many cases. So th- that's one of the things that that continually uh, gets under my skin. And I, I don't want to be a hypocrite. Like I've done that before in research because like it's a thing that's done. So like early on in my research career, you know, people say, oh, that's that's a thing people do, like get it to groups and then you can just, you know, do ANOVAs and stuff. So yeah, you know, don't want to be hypocritical, but like, you know, we, we got to start teaching people that are doing research that, you know, that's, that's probably not the best way to do it. Yeah, no. I, so I, I think <laughs> one of the main reasons people do that relates to uh, some, some of the biggest issues I see. And that, that is just discourse around uh, regression and associations always frustrates me to no end. And so I think one of the reasons that people frequently uh, group continuous variables instead of 
using the most logical tool at your disposal, which is just linear regression or some form of regression, is it just gets beaten into your head even before your first statistics class, like probably in middle school or like maybe some high school teacher exposed you to it. Correlation does not imply causation. And so I think to... to I think when you're setting up uh, an experiment and you're like, how am I going to analyze these data? Just kind of implicitly in the back of your mind, you think like, oh, well, if I split these into two groups and run a t-test, then I can draw causal inferences. But if I just run a correlation, I can't. And I mean, any researcher worth their salt, if they thought about that, maybe subconscious assumption for two seconds, they'd realize, no, like that's obviously bullshit. Like you need to... Uh, do like you need to do some randomization before you can imply causation from like a group based analysis. And if you're just separating groups based on response post hoc, you you can't draw causal inferences regardless of of what type of analysis you run. But I, I think that that's kind of just like a, a not a short circuit in people's brains, but something like that. You, you just think like, oh well. It's going to make my strong my results stronger and more causally if I split it into groups and analyze the groups versus just using regression, uh, which which is not the case. Um, but anyway, yeah, so I, I think that there are a lot of like misinterpretations and, and misuse of regression and, and results based on regression and correlation out there. Um, so on on one hand, you know, in year of our Lord 2021, you still see people trying to make causal inferences based purely on associations. You know, you, correlation does not necessarily imply causation. That's no bueno. You can't do that. Uh, on the flip side, I also see a lot of people who have that in their mind. Correlation does not necessarily imply causation. And they use that to essentially disregard and discount any research that is primarily just looking at associations uh, and, and saying like, oh, well, this doesn't imply causation. It's not even worth the paper it's printed on. And that's very frustrating to me because there are a lot of research questions that don't lend themselves to RCTs. Uh, and, and we've talked about this on the podcast before, like when when does association possibly imply causation? There, there are multiple criteria that you could look at, uh, referred to as the Bradford Hill criteria. There, there have been some criticisms of that and maybe some additional criteria added over the years. But you know, if you're interested in when might association imply causation, search the Bradford Hill criteria. That's that's a pretty decent place to start. Uh, but yeah, like... Um, Research findings and, and research paradigms based on regression and, and associations can be very strong and very informative, and at minimum, are, are are often the only ways that we can investigate certain questions, because there are a lot of research questions out there that don't lend themselves to RCTs, either for practical reasons or just for ethical reasons. Like, the, the go-to example is... Uh, like the the decades long campaign of big tobacco to fight the uh, the link between cigarette smoking and lung cancer because they'd say like you know we want we want solid science these researchers are saying that there's associations but you know correlation does not imply causation where are the RCTs and you know in a vacuum that sounds 
you know, vaguely reasonable. But if you think that smoking cigarettes causes cancer, good luck telling an, telling an IRB, like an ethics board, like, hey, we think cigarettes cause cancer, but we don't have proof. So uh, we would like to recruit a group of 5,000 subjects and uh, incentivize 2,500 of them to smoke two packs a day for the next 20 years and see if they get lung cancer more than the 2,500 that don't smoke. If if you think that you're going to give a bunch of people fucking lung cancer, no ethics board is going to sign off on that. So, th- so that's a situation where for ethical reasons, you will never have an RCT. Like you'll never be able to establish the strongest level of evidence to uh, strongly demonstrate causation. So, so like you're going to have to rely on associations. And I think that there's... Um, for certain more politically charged issues, I think that uh, uh, smearing associations and, and correlational epi-type research is a purposeful strategy some people use to to muddy the waters when you're dealing with research topics that inherently don't lend themselves to RCTs. And, and I think that there are bad faith actors that head that up. And I think a lot of very well-meaning people hear these very reasonable sounding arguments like, look, we don't disbelieve the science. We just want, we just want the good science, not this like correlation weak saw shit. Uh, but that's, it's so bad faith and it, it drives me insane. Uh, so that's, yeah, I, I did get in a little bit of a back and forth with somebody not too long ago where they're like, show me an RCT where the researchers pushed people's uh, pushed people into the deep depths of a vitamin deficiency and showed that it was deleterious. <laughs> uh, it, it was like RCTs only. I want you to show me the study where groups were randomized and then subjected to uh, just absolutely disastrous vitamin deficiencies. And I was like, "Well, you got me on that one. I do not have that. Yeah, uh, I can show you RCTs where." They determined the correct approach to rectifying that deficiency, which presented with, uh, you know, notable clinical symptoms. But yeah, I think a lot of times people lean too much on that idea of like, it's got to be an RCT or or nothing at all. Yeah. And there are just some there are just some areas of research where that's not a that's not a useful approach to take. Yeah. So that that's kind of the more. Um... So that that's kind of a bummer. That that turned more serious than I meant it to. Uh, a, a more just like straightforward, less uh, uh, emotionally encumbered statistical issue that that I often see is uh, a, a critique of research that I'll see. Like if someone posts a, a figure on social media, is like you're saying that these two groups are different, but I see that the error bars overlap. Therefore, they can't possibly be different. That's that's not how it works. Yeah, um, I got in that argument like the other day. Yeah, yeah, that's that's why it's top of mind. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. So, um, uh, assuming that the figure is showing the actual like root means and standard deviations that are being compared. Uh, you, you can still have error standard deviation bars overlapping and it still be a, a statistically significant difference because ultimately the difference between groups 
comes down to standard errors more than standard deviations. Um, you, you use standard errors to construct your confidence interval. And if you're dealing with two groups and the confidence intervals don't overlap, or if you're dealing with the, the differences uh, within a group at different time points and, and the confidence interval for those differences doesn't cross zero, then that's a statistically significant difference. Um, and the standard errors are going to depend largely on the sample size. So you could have massively overlapping standard deviation bars or even situations where like the standard deviation bar in one group overlaps the mean of the other group. And if you have an adequate sample size, you can still confidently state that those two means are different. Um, so yeah, that's, you, you can't just look at the means and standard deviation bars. And if you see any sort of overlap in those standard deviation bars, use that as a shorthand to imply that the group means aren't different. That's that's just not how inferential statistics works. <laughs> yeah. All right, Greg, uh, to play us out, it's my understanding that you have a media recommendation. I do, I do. Uh, so there was a film that came out several years ago called What We Do in the Shadows, and it was a delightful film. And then there was a television show based on that film, also titled What We Do in the Shadows, and it was a delightful TV show. I think I think they're going to be making more seasons. I hope they do. It's great. Uh, and now there is another spinoff TV show from the What We Do in the Shadows TV show called Wellington Paranormal. And the first two episodes are out, and it is also absolutely delightful. Uh, it is um, it's a show based out of New Zealand. So uh, I think, I don't know if this is true around the globe, but Every American I've talked to finds New Zealand accents incredibly charming. So uh, it, it's good vibes based on on accents alone. I think I think that's the same thing as Fargo. Like from everyone who's not from the Upper Midwest, you just hear those Upper Midwest accents, and you're like, ah, yeah, good vibes here. Um, yeah, I, I watched Flight of the Concords and really enjoyed the uh, yeah the, the New Zealand accent. Um, so yeah, the the fact that you have a bunch of people speaking with really thick New Zealand accents obvious automatically makes it uh lighthearted fun for Americans. Um but it's the the whole what we do in the shadows cinematic universe is just, you know, good, lighthearted fun, very delightful. Um goes down smooth, pretty funny. Uh so yeah, if you're if you're looking around for um, you know, a, a low stakes, low stress little comedy show to sink your teeth into. I'd recommend uh, starting with what we do in the shadows and at least through the first two episodes, I would also recommend following that up with Wellington Paranormal. All right, good stuff. So that does it for this episode. Uh, we are about to take a couple weeks off from the podcast. We are obviously hard at work getting the nutrition app finished up and ready to go. So over the next couple of weeks, we're going to focus on that. Uh, but of course, we will be back probably around mid-August with more episodes of the podcast. In the meantime, make sure you stay stocked up on your dietary supplements. If you go over to bulksupplements.com, be sure to use the checkout code SBSPOD and it'll save you 5% on your order. As always, thank you for listening and we'll be back soon. Thank you for listening to the Stronger by Science podcast. 
If you enjoyed the podcast, be sure to sign up for our free newsletter to get concise breakdowns of relevant research, as well as 28 free training programs for all skill levels and all schedules. We hate spam just as much as you do, so we'll only email you when we have something really interesting to share with you. You can sign up for the free newsletter at strongerbyscience.com newsletter, or just go to the Stronger by Science homepage and click the free programs button at the top. If you want to join in on the Stronger by Science podcast conversation, be sure to check out our Facebook group and our subreddit. The links for both are provided in the description of today's episode. Finally, please remember that we are not medical doctors or registered dietitians. So before you make any changes to your exercise or nutrition habits, be sure to check with a qualified healthcare professional. Once again, thank you for listening, and we will be back soon with another episode of the Stronger by Science podcast.